The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Jose Nino, who is a Venezuelan-American freelance writer, political operative, and author of The Ten Myths of Gun Control. We'll be discussing U.S. foreign policy, Venezuela and Latin America, as well as his assessment of what's unfolding on the home front in the United States. Gracias por acompañarnos hoy, Jose. <laughs> De nada. Um, yeah, it's uh -huh. a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to have you. And before I get to my first question, uh, let me just remind listeners to please leave us a podcast review on Apple and elsewhere. Sign up for our free email list and subscribe to our mainstream and alternative social media channels. And if you can, become a monthly supporter on Subscribestar or Patreon. There's a lot of uh, big tech censorship happening uh, this week. And so Twitter accounts are being terminated, YouTube accounts, Facebook pages. And so make sure to, to find us uh, on our website and email list and everywhere else. So uh, Jose, you wrote a great piece for Mises.com uh, recently on the need for a new U.S. foreign policy and geopolitical reset. And I think many of us have been wanting this for years, but nothing ever seems to change. Uh, I've interviewed not too long ago the former head of Chatham House, Victor Bulmer Thomas, who said that the U.S. empire is in retreat. And we've seen President Trump attempt to pull troops out in some areas, yet continue to act as empire in other geographies. I know, I think just this week, he wanted to pull troops out of Somalia. Uh, we still see the U.S. carrying out regime change successfully in places such as Ecuador and Bolivia, albeit unsuccessfully in Venezuela. There are coup attempts, I believe, in the post-Soviet space that are ongoing, such as Belarus and Kyrgyzstan. Washington continues to rattle its saber with China and refuses to leave Iran or Russia alone. You've written on how Washington is adamant on Iranian regime change, and that has pushed China, Russia, and Iran together. Indeed, we've recently seen war games that included all three, and not, not to mention a key 25-year energy deal uh, between Iran and China. So, you know, how do you see U.S. foreign policy today, U.S. Uh, unilateralism, and the geopolitical space uh, in general? Well, I see U.S. foreign policy as totally outdated and detrimental. Many of these people live either in a World War II or Cold War era type of time warp. This goes from the liberal interventionist types to the neoconservatives. And as a result of the so-called foreign policy blobs, type of mindset towards foreign policy we have we have witnessed a form of blowback if you will in that there is a new balancing coalition against u.s unilateralism that is developing between russia iran and china as you mentioned iran and china recently penned a 25-year deal that's worth about 400 billion dollars where, where they will strategically partner on issues of trade, politics, and culture, and they're just going to bolster ties there. And that helps Iran a lot because they've been hit hard with sanctions and a lot of isolation by the U.S. But at the same time, this shows as well that the game is changing. The U.S. can't just unilaterally topple countries any longer. A lot of these countries that get hit with sanctions and other forms of hard power, they can turn to Russia or China for support. And this is a stark contrast from the unipolar moment from 
the collapse of the Soviet Union until the Syrian conflict where the U.S. could pretty much do whatever it wants. Now the game has changed. And I think that although in the next decade or so you won't see anything hot or kinetic, the U.S. is building the kind of environment for a pretty nasty conflict where there will be a large balancing coalition against it. And depending on how zealous U.S. foreign policy elites get, the conflict is ultimately inevitable at this point. As much as the Trump administration has talked about ending never-ending wars, it's still staffed by a lot of people that believe in this kind of regime change, U.S. supremacy type of outlook. And until there is a massive change, not only in public opinion, but also in personnel, I think that the U.S. will pursue this kind of path in some shape or form. The good news is the Trump administration, to its credit, has nominated people such as Douglas McGregor to the ambassador of Germany position and William Ruger to the Afghan stand ambassador position who are both critics of this kind of regime change, never-ending wars approach the U.S. has pursued in the last decade. But they might not get confirmed, and they definitely are not enough to beat back these type of forces, but they're still a good start. Unfortunately, it might be too little too late at this point. And let's extrapolate a, a bit. That was kind of my next question as you said things are kind of changing and the unipolar moment you cannot last forever and, and as you said that we're moving into this that there's, there's this other block that's beginning to push back against the u.s empire and this is just a typical you know this is basic history this is how things unfold and you know we saw the u.s take out libya russia and china stood down back in 2011 because they were not strong enough themselves uh, militarily Ch russia and, and china francis boyle has written a book uh, on this, and that was his his perspective. Um, and then it seems that Russia, Iran, and China have drawn the red line on Syria and put, for now, uh, you know, pushed back America's uh, advances in in Syria. And you know, they've come to the aid of Maduro and Venezuela. And it seems recently Iraq has become really annoyed with America and wants Americans uh, out of Iraq. And so. You, so you said, you know, I, I'm thinking that within the next decade or two, we're going to see, you know, another global war. That's just my perspective. I kind of see it as inevitable. Do you see, what do you see? And there's a lot of talk now of war with China, hot war with China. Um, and so if, if you could extrapolate a bit, where do you see, you know, the next two, five or 10 years going in terms of this reordering of, of the system and whether you think we could see uh, a, re a big regional war or even global conflict? Indeed, warfare has changed a bit. And what we'll probably see in the short term, you, you'll definitely see proxy wars and information warfare as well. That's part of the 21st century and color revolutions of sorts. Yeah. That kind of stuff, I believe, will happen regardless of who's in power, whether it's Trump or Biden. I think the latter and Biden will very likely push for more of a like 
a neoliberal type of color revolution strategy with some of these countries. For full-blown conventional warfare, I'd say probably maybe after a decade or so, once a lot of the coronavirus destabilization gets under control, I think a lot of these countries will just go back to pursuing their traditional geopolitics because that's kind of thrown a wrench in a lot of people's plans. But I still think that the type of conflict between these two blocks, the say the so-called liberal democratic bloc and the illiberal bloc, if you will, it's inevitable, I think, because of the fact that you have one bloc, the U.S., led by the U.S., continuously throwing its weight around all over the world. And in basic geopolitical and international relations analysis, a lot of countries tend to balance together and order, uh, join together to balance out a hegemon, a hegemon's domination aspirations across the world. So we're seeing that happen in real time. And that to me leads to the inevitability of a conflict. The question is when it's going to happen. And that's hard to always pinpoint, but I think that there's going to be in the interim more unconventional forms of conflict that you will see. And that'll be generally a precursor to the inevitable showdown between this block. All right. And then let, let's kind of take a turn toward Latin America and, and Venezuela, where I think you were born and just kind of get your thoughts. Cause you know, there's, that's been going on for a while. Uh, this, this conflict between us and Venezuela and just to get your thoughts, what do you make of the current, uh, Venezuelan, uh, government as well as, you know, what's been going on there between the U S and, and Venezuela. I used to write a lot about Venezuela, especially the economic history, because I point out to people that the current Venezuelan collapse has been mostly 50 years in the making. The country has had pretty dysfunctional governance prior to Chavez and has kind of continued into it. And it's mostly due to a lot of economic mismanagement and the introduction of the petro state after they nationalized the oil industry in the 70s and easy money policies. Just to give people an example of this, Venezuelan millennials have never lived in a single year where inflation was below 10%. The last time inflation was below 10% in Venezuela was in 1983. And that's persisted to this day, and it's more of a structural issue. And I point out that, yes, the all these regimes are pretty bad, but the fact that the U.S. is going to try to get involved, I'm of the opinion, could make things worse because that's the thing about interventions. They don't take into account unintended consequences and power vacuums that happen. And I'm of the opinion that <clears throat> should they have, should the U.S. have intervened, it would have resulted possibly in a massive kind of insurgency because some of the biggest powers in Venezuela tend to be criminal entities that have effectively 
taken over the prison system there, and those people would be the beneficiaries of a total destabilization campaign. And should they assume power, I think it would just turn into a complete mess, a civil war of sorts, or some type of massive factional struggle that will be even more violent than what they're seeing in Venezuela. You can debate what caused the collapse, but I think what's indisputable is that intervening in that country will not make things better. And honestly, I've studied the opposition as well. They want to continue the same failed policies of of the previous decades before Chavez came into power that created that environment for a demagogue like Chavez to assume power. So there's no guarantee that some type of regime change will magically lead to stability. And yeah, I think that whole scenario is just a mess, but it's also a a kind of flashpoint, if you will, because a lot of these other competing countries that are in the bloc that rivals the U.S., such as Iran, China, Russia, and even Turkey have helped prop up the Maduro regime. And it's, in a way, the second Syria. It's the Syria of the Western Hemisphere, where the U.S. has also met pretty stiff opposition from this more Eastern bloc of countries. And it just goes to show that wherever the U.S. tries to throw its weight around, it's going to face a the stiff amount of resistance. Yeah, I'm of the same opinion as yourself, pretty much. And, you know, I've, I've had on my former professor, the UN special reporter, Alfred Desayas, who uh, went as the special reporter of the UN to Venezuela, I think in 2018 or 17. And he did the report and his report contravened the official narrative uh, on Venezuela. And he basically said he submitted it to the UN and everyone, including the UN, intentionally ignored uh, what what he was saying, and sometimes I get into arguments because everyone is either like in the camp of I love Maduro, you know, or U.S. regime change, and there's not this nuance. Well, you know, I don't like the Maduro government myself, but you know, as you said, U.S. regime change and foreign interference can make things actually worse. And as you said, you usually we have civil war after there's the U.S. regime change. And somebody, look at Libya, you know, so many more people are, are dead than when Gaddafi was in charge. No, that's the thing with the, the Venezuela question. I've researched it for a while. I don't really focus it on it as much, but I've done a thorough amount of research to understand that these, the problems there are just multi-decades in the making, and you just can't really fix them with a magic wand through intervention or whatever, that's a problem for them to resolve. It's now more of a geopolitical question. Now you have big actors there trying to make moves. The whole thing with the U.S., it's not about liberal democracy. It's about the fact that they don't want these interests such as China or Russia in their backyard. It's actually, ironically, a failure of the Monroe Doctrine, too. The U.S. can no longer enforce one of its biggest geopolitical strategies that was set right after its foundation. And it just is another example of imperial overstretch. And uh, so speaking, since we're in Latin America, I mean, what other key things, developments do you follow uh, in uh, Latin America that you think are important to, to mention? 
I think one thing that is somewhat interesting in Latin America now is since the election of Jair Bolsonaro is the talk of expanded gun rights since his administration has somewhat loosened up restrictions for law-abiding citizens there to own guns. It's kind of been a big deal because that subject has never really been talked about in Latin America. And it's a region that's known for high levels of crime and corruption. And most people can't really rely on public security institutions for safety. So I think that was somewhat of a major breakthrough there. Because for most people, the idea of a right to bear arms is an intrinsically American concept. And it's pretty difficult to envision other countries adopting it. But now you're even seeing countries such as like the Czech Republic in Europe doing that. And as far as other topics are concerned, I think inflation is always a perennial bugaboo in that region due to the fact that they have a lot of central bank mismanagement. Just look at not just Venezuela, but also countries such as Argentina, which every other decade slips into that kind of crisis. And that's something to look out for. And I think with the Wuhan virus, you may see the U.S. move some of its supply chains back to Latin America or to other countries for strategic purposes there in order to encourage more economic development and prevent more refugees from coming into the U.S. because immigration is a big issue. And one way to curtail that is to build up these countries or at least bring businesses to these countries. And as the, the global order becomes more of China versus the U.S., I think that U.S. policymakers will be looking to see how to bring these type of businesses to Latin America. So in order to bolster that region and keep China at bay. Yeah, I think that's definitely a, a trend near shoring. I read a Financial Times piece talking about Colombia uh, and Mexico and how I think that's part of the whole next uh, stage of development where we're going to be forming regional blocks. And so a lot of the supply chain issues, you know, Mexico is going to be doing a lot of the, well, Latin America is going to be doing a lot of the work for the U.S. Uh, and, you know, probably Africa for Europe and then Southeast Asia for, for East Asia. Um, and another, you mentioned the guns and that, that's something you talk about uh, a lot, I think, on, on your newsletter and, and, and blog and, and, and website, and you have a book about it. And I feel strongly about guns. I know some listeners will disagree, but, you know, um, I, I stared down the barrel of a gun when I was robbed many years ago in the streets of Chicago. And, you know, people might think, well, you know, if you had that terrifying experience, uh, you're going to hate guns. And I'm going to say, no, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not disgusted or afraid of, of guns because as well, I, I, I'm a Croat and we had the biggest war in Europe since World War II in the 1990s. And again, that's a big part of the Croat uh, culture is, is guns. And, and even here in Mexico, as, as you mentioned, we can't trust the institutions in, in Latin America and in large parts of Latin America. And you know, I've had multiple home break-ins and it's like I feel that we have all these criminals running rampant with, with guns and the police cannot protect us. And, uh, you know, so us good citizens are running around 
uh, on an unequal playing field. And I, I do really think that ha that citizens having legal uh, access and the legal ability to wield firearms is w would would make things less dangerous and, and move in a, in a more positive direction. I, I don't know what you if you have anything to say add to that. One thing to add, even I would say a lot of Americans now are going to have a shared experience with Latin Americans regarding the inability of law enforcement to assume their basic functions. Because as you're seeing with these riots across the country in the U.S., a lot of police departments are standing down or elected officials are just telling these law enforcement bodies not to arrest these looters and rioters. So people have responded in a very natural fashion. Even the leftiest of people, they're buying guns in record numbers across the nation. Even in very anti-gun states, people are doing that. And people are starting to recognize that these kinds of institutions will not always be there to defend them. They're ultimately their best first responder and an armed, a lawful armed individual is more than capable of defending themselves and their family from all these agitators when police aren't doing their job. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, especially in Mexico, the police are in league with, with the criminals. So you, you can't trust uh, anyone. And, and so, yeah, and just, just the mere fact of having a firearm is itself often uh, deterrence. You don't even have to use it in, in many cases just by people knowing you you own one and know very well how to operate one. Uh, and then as, so as we've kind of come back to the U.S., I mean, a lot is happening in the U.S. Uh, I feel the U.S. is um, in an existential moment. You know, we've got we've got this next election coming up very soon. And I personally feel all hell is going to break loose and that we're going to see things that even as many of my past podcast guests have have said that we're going to see things that we never would have imagined you know that we have not seen up until this moment in, in u.s history and me for me personally uh, i i feel that president trump is the least worst of the options but even still i feel that regardless of who wins the presidency that we are on this kind of train ride that's going to crash uh you know no matter who takes charge of the steering wheel or, or the titanic is collapsing and we're just t discussing uh, talking about who's uh, we're rearranging the deck chairs so i mean what are your thoughts going into this election uh we've got these blm antifa color revolution style uh riots cities being burned down uh, as you said people they're saying that these these agitators are going to be going out into the suburban uh, areas and so you know what are your thoughts about what's happening in america today yeah, the U.S. is definitely entering a new phase, especially with this woke politics and very polarized and racialized discourse where the country is fully consolidating the multicultural ideology that's been pushed in universities and other institutions over the past few decades. And now it's manifesting itself in concrete form and in a very nasty fashion. I see the unrest continuing, and I don't think there's going to be an election day 
it's going to be probably election week or month or months because of all this mail-in ballot stuff and just the concerns about fraud. I think this is going to be the first election where both sides of the aisle are going to question the results without a doubt. And the transition to power will very likely not be peaceful. You'll see a lot of these scattered incidents of people getting killed for political reasons, such as that case in Denver with that private security guard that shot a Trump, a pro-Trump protester. And I, I think those incidents are going to increase a lot in the next few weeks. And I'm also of the opinion that although I will be supporting Donald Trump, that there might not be a lot in terms of change because of the fact that this, the regime structure is still intact and these parties are Tweedledee and Tweedledum when it comes to the issues that matter, whether it's central banking, foreign policy. And my, my view is that the U.S. is probably entering this 21st century type of technological serfdom where you're just going to have a massive underclass ruled by this technocratic elite that benefits tremendously from the fiat system and they'll accrue all the benefits thanks to the Cantillon effect where the people who receive the money first are the ones who benefit from inflation whereas the rest they get a devalued currency and they have to scrape by just to earn a living I think you're going to see more of that and you can also see what the what the political researcher Peter Turchin says it's called elite overproduction, where you have just a bunch of college educated people that are underemployed or are working jobs that don't require a university degree, but they're just going to be earning a meager living and be very agitated and radicalized because the media, academic institutions, and their peer groups, and they're just going to continue to agitate. A lot of these people, you'll probably find them at the Antifa and BLM riots. I think that kind of stuff is going to be amplified, and you're going to see more of a breakdown of the U.S. as a coherent political unit. I think that balkanization is not out of the question in the next few decades for the U.S., yeah, I've got Turchin's books uh, behind me on my bookshelf. It's good that you mentioned him. Um, again, I don't agree with everything that he says, but he's a very smart guy and has a lot of good uh, insights. And uh, basically, yeah, like what you're saying, we're entering a, a form of Elysium, you know, that Matt Damon film. And I'm convinced of that. You know, I've had people, a few people on, we talked about technocracy, you know, the scientific dictatorship. And, and that's like what we're moving into, this dystopia and... I mean, I, I sound like a pessimist, but I, I view it as a, as a real a realist thing. You know, I don't want it to happen, but like it's, it's, we're going into bad times. And this week, it just kind of really hit me in the gut when we saw this week, just like yesterday or the day before, YouTube deleted dozens and dozens of channels. They suspended Twitter accounts. Uh, they've Facebook deleted uh pages of alternative political parties like the one in New Zealand and the fact that they've now it's it's like they've taken off their mask 
and and they've just revealed you know these totalitarian that the, 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 the totalitarians that they are and that just kind of tells me that they feel very um like they're going to succeed with their plan and now they're just going to go advance you know they're, they're going big or they're going home and i feel like we're in that moment where you know the masses come off and they're just pushing forward now and we're moving into this phase where you know it's going to be openly obvious that it's like this dystopian system that you described they don't want 2016 to happen. I actually forgot to mention the social media big tech because I do see on election day, they're probably going to shut down so much of that stuff or even the lead up as well. But election day, I think they're going to put the clamps down. They don't want a repeat of 2016 because 2016, the elites got caught sleeping and now they, they're making sure to get the, all of their bases covered. And you saw with that New York Post story, that's the preview of what's going to happen. They're going to be censoring a lot of stuff. They've already kicked out a lot of people from the dissident right and dissident left off of social media because they want to narrow discourse as much as possible. The only tolerable opinions range from the spectrum that you see on MSNBC to Ben Shapiro. That's what they want. And, and I think that's just going to be accelerated now and yeah it's gonna look like a dystopian cyberpunk novel to be honest what we're like heading towards technology is a double-edged sword it can help people but it also allows for the managerial state that rules over us to consolidate and mold public opinion and implement policy almost at will and that's why this, this is why I say it's important to to support uh, geopolitics and empire as well as uh, Jose Nino's work on, on Patreon, but as well on our alternative channels. You know, I've been lately using Telegram, Minds, Gab, MeWe, my email list, BitChute, and Brighteon because it's just a matter of time before they delete uh, the geopolitics and empire YouTube channel, and that is a big hit, regardless of what content creators like ourselves say that you know that takes away a large portion of of our listenership i mean we're still on apple podcasts and spotify but people are really going to start to need to, to bookmark our sites and visit us there because as you said as they call the, the left and the right dissidents um a, a large amount of us are going to fall by the wayside and so people have to find find us and bookmark bookmark us um, if you have any other thoughts, uh, any other issue you, you wanted to bring up, a a any final thoughts, anything we haven't covered? I think I'm good. I had a great time chatting, though. All right. And your main website is josealnino.com, and you're also on Twitter. Are there other websites or projects that we should know about? Well, if you want to get my guides on the 10 myths of gun control it's josealnino.com 10 myths of gun control and for the venezuelan economic history how socialism destroyed venezuela that's also at josealnino.com forward slash how socialism destroyed venezuela this is more of a broad-based economic history book that goes all the way to the 1950s in venezuela if you're a history buff i highly recommend it the first book on gun control is based is for people that want to get into that type of field and learn about gun politics. And if you want my general political thoughts and musings, you can sign up to my newsletter, josealnino.com forward slash newsletter. 
there I talk about some of my latest write-ups and also political observations. And my Patreon content is more for for premium political insights based on my experiences working with with numerous gun lobbies. And you can just find me at Jose Nino pa- Patreon. All right. I, I, I would urge folks to sign up for Jose's newsletter. I'm signed up and I follow him on Twitter, support his work uh, on Patreon. And I think you can find his articles on Mises, uh, Big League Politics uh, and elsewhere. Uh, fue un placer entrevistarte uh, hoy en Geopolítica e Imperio, Jose. Thank you so much. I had a pleasure talking as well. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.